You're listening to today's Boondoggle with your host, the one and only Bill Bailey on Domain Cleveland Radio. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this intro before the intro of our today's Boondoggle radio show. Uh, As you know, we're a veteran-owned and operated podcast, and this has been an incredibly therapeutic journey for me as a veteran that struggles with PTSD and anxiety, just getting out and talking to people, but uh, it does cost us some money, so if you feel so obliged to donate to our GoFundMe, we have a GoFundMe under Today's Boondoggle, we also have a Venmo at Today's Boondoggle that you can donate to, Uh, our Anchor Sponsorship at anchor.fm forward slash today's boondoggle uh, any questions comments suggestions complaints you can email us at today's boondoggle at gmail.com and please follow us on our social media sites at uh, at today's boondoggle on instagram facebook twitter all your uh, social media platforms as well as our youtube channel our rumble channel and our bit channel please follow subscribe comment and download and please consider checking out our sponsors if you uh, support our sponsor dream nutrition you can receive 10 percent off your order by using the promo code boondog10 at checkout so dream nutrition they're a veteran owned and operated company as well so please support them and receive 10 percent off using the promo code boondog10 thanks for your time and thanks for listening Thank you for tuning into this week's edition of today's Boondoggle. Domain Cleveland Entertainment is a veteran-owned and operated entertainment cornucopia of nonsensical shenanigans. You can find interesting interviews, music news, entertainment information and just about everything else in between. Thank you again for tuning into the show here at Domain Cleveland. What's going on, everybody? It's Bill Bailey with today's Boondoggle. And real quick housekeeping note, if you're watching us on YouTube or BitChute or Rumble or Odyssey, please hit that follow and subscribe button. Or if you're uh, listening to us on Spotify, Apple, Google, whatever podcast platform, please hit that subscribe button as well so I can continue to bring you conversations like the one I'm about to have right now. I am. Uh, it's just such an honor to uh, be able to connect with somebody who's been a huge influencer and, uh, you know, been, been a sounding bell, I guess, for our country for many years through your lectures and uh, uh, your writings and research. But I got author, researcher, filmmaker, lecturer, G. Edward Griffin. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, Bill. Thank you. And, uh, it, you know, ironically, today it's President's Day, and I and I notice it's also World Day of Social Justice. So maybe we'll have some tips for <laughs> the rest of the country in this in this conversation today. But usually, when I have someone on for the first time, I like to get a quick background. I know you were uh, born in Detroit, Michigan area, but uh, do you remember originally what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh yes, I do. I wanted to be an architect. Um, I was raised by 
an old maid school teacher aunt and my grandmother. I was sort of rescued from a broken family, fortunately, at a very early age. And one of the things they gave me when I think I was probably about, I'm going to guess around nine or 10 years old, they gave me a, a nice wooden drawing board and a T-square and a couple of, uh, you know, triangles and plastic things and a nice set of pencils and lots of big sheets of paper because I like to draw things, you know, not people, but mechanical things, house designs, things like that. So that really picked me, you know, I thought, boy, that's pretty, this is fun. So I was going to be a, an architect at that age. Well, nice. I was, of course, but that was how I started. And then uh, as time went on, like what attracted you to, uh, you know, like journalism and writing? Well, that's a long convoluted story, Bill. Like most people's lives, you start off in one direction and you'd never guess where you're going to wind up. It certainly wasn't in the direction that you started. And that was certainly my case. I don't know. Is this sort of a, I'll try and keep this short, but since you asked, it's, uh, it, I guess it's uh, similar to a lot of stories like that where people zigzag through life. Um, I was exposed at a very early age, about the same time, to uh, a free class that the Detroit School Board of Education was giving on Saturday, uh, Saturday afternoons for anybody that wanted to come, a class on how to, uh, uh, how radio works, because radio was the big thing in those days. And, uh, and so we went to find out how to use a microphone and, and um, you know, how programs are put together and what a radio station looks like and how they make sound effects and how they read the script and all that sort of thing. So uh, I went to this class and uh, it was held in a, a very large uh, radio studio. You could put an orchestra in the studio. It was a pretty large and, and very modern for the day type studio. And uh, I guess there must have been a hundred kids there or more. Uh, so much so there was no place to sit down. People were sitting on the floors and standing while we got all these opening uh, lessons on, well, this is a microphone and you want to stand not too close to the microphone, not too far away to the microphone. And you want to project just a little bit and so forth. And uh, when you see the man behind the glass, he's the director. And if he points at you, that means you start. If he, he does this, that means uh, you stop. And if he does that, that means you speed up. And if he, if he does this, that means you slow down, all this sort of thing. So we're sitting there all taking mental notes on all this wonderful stuff. And I thought, this is a lot of fun. So the next Saturday I came back and uh, the crowd had reduced considerably. There was about 50 kids there and uh, went more, through more of the same, a little more complicated stuff. The next Saturday I went back and there were about 25 kids there. The next Saturday there was about 12. And the next Saturday there's about five or six of us. And after that, there was, we were the three or four or five kids in Detroit that were involved in radio. And anytime any of the commercial stations in the area, many of whom were putting on original drama shows of their own, by the way. The Lone Ranger, for example, was coming out of Detroit. The Hermit's Cave and Ford Theater, all those things. I got to play on those as a kid because anytime they needed a, a young actor, they'd call on this little group of five or six of us, three, five, was a small ten people. And so I got a lot of um, calls to go uh, act on radio in commercial radio in Detroit. Well, that was a big rush. And I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. I lost all interest in becoming an architect. Now I'm going to become an actor or a director or a producer or something like that. So that was the first change. And that's, uh, that took me to Hollywood many, many years later. 
where I was going to fulfill that dream. By the way, I did work in television in between, and I was an assistant uh, director in Detroit at WWJ, a television studio. I uh, kind of worked my way through college as a radio announcer and all of that. So when I came out of the military, I went to Hollywood, where I was going to fulfill this magnificent uh, dream. And I found out that there were a lot of young people there with much more talent than I had. And they were wasting their lives. They were waiting table and washing cars, waiting for the big moment where they'd have a chance to you know, get their big break. And yeah. by this time, I've got a, a wife and a, a kid. And I'm thinking, boy, I've got to I've got to support these people. They're my family now. I'm I'm responsible. So I got uh, deposed of the idea of being a superstar in Hollywood. And I got a real job with a corporation. And so this is how it all went. So after that, though, I was um, I was um, determined that I, I wasn't going to be in, in entertainment in any way or communications, which was my major at the university, because it just wasn't room for a person of low caliber, and low skills such as me. Well, then, of course, uh, I got uh, bitten by the crusader bug, the crusader gene, when I found out that the world was going to hell in a handbasket, and I decided to, to try and save the world. So you see, I jumped from one impossible goal to the other. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, too, when you were running through that timeline, because I saw that you had served in the military mm -hmm. as well. And I wasn't sure if that was before or after you graduated university or where did well, that, that was fall? after that was afterwards. Yeah, I graduated so from the University of Michigan. That's where I had the job at the radio station at WUOM. And then I went into the military for a couple of years and uh, served in uh, El Paso, Texas, and then and then uh, went to Hollywood after that. So anyway, that's how it went. I decided now I'm going to become a crusader and I'm going to save the world and get rid of uh, this great conspiracy, which I was discovering was real. And uh, so that changed my life once again. I just said, well, I, I've got all this background in communications and um, I do a pretty good job of making a, a verbal presentation, giving a speech. People yes. seem to like that. They were asking me to give speeches on various topics. I knew how to produce film. I knew a lot about television by this time. So I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start producing very low-budget documentary films on these things. And so now, all of a sudden, my career is in the filmmaking and in the communications. I'm back again, sort of where I started, but this time with a very narrow field it wasn't going to be entertainment it was going to be enlightenment and so i've been on pretty much that path ever since there you have would it you, would you say that part of your uh your time serving in the military like kind of like woke you up to a big conspiracy or motivated you to go in that route of the crusader no no nothing at that point uh, at that point i was still starry-eyed still going to hollywood in fact uh one of my, in fact, my main job in the military, this is kind of, I, nobody cares about this, but since you asked these questions, I've got to answer them. I went in and uh, I knew something about uh, the words that you use in television and, and radio stations. I didn't know what the words meant, but I knew it. Oh, that's a rheostat. And that's, you know, that's uh, uh, something wrong with the, uh, with the, um, the resistor and the circuit. You know, these guys, I hear them talking about the technical things underneath the hood and all this equipment. So when I took the, um, the aptitude examination in the military, I did pretty good on those words, even though I wasn't quite sure what they meant. 
So they thought, oh, here's a guy with technical aptitude. So instead of making me, uh, putting me in as they promised they would when I went in, instead of make, putting me into a uh, propaganda unit, which was supposed to you know, deliver messages behind enemy lines and all that kind of thing, um, then they, they said, okay, you're going to radar school. <laughs> so I, uh, I spent, I don't know, 12, 13 weeks learning all about radar systems and how to fix them and repair them. And um, when I came out of that, they made me an instructor in that field, um, which was kind of a joke because I only did that for about two or three weeks. And um, then one day in the PX at the military base, I ran into a colonel there. I'm just an enlisted guy. I'm a, a corporal by this time. And um, I ran into a colonel who I knew in civilian life in, uh, in Detroit. He was an agent for actors in, uh, in Detroit. And we recognized each other. So we had coffee and uh, he asked me if I would, would come and work in his unit that he was in charge of. And I said, what's that? And he says, it's, uh, it's the uh, special services. That means all of the, the clubhouses where, where the soldiers go for recreation and, and crafts and uh, listen to music and build things and all that sort of thing. So I said, well, yeah, that sounds good, but I'm in the radar. Well, he pulled some levers. And the first thing you know, I'm not in radar anymore. I'm his assistant on, uh, on the base in Fort Bliss, Texas doing all this fun stuff. And then about two weeks after that, this poor chap gets called to go to the swamps of Louisiana in some kind of an awful assignment. And it left me behind. And um, they found some uh, first lieutenant that didn't know anything about the, the work that we were doing, but the guy had to have an officer in charge. So he was in charge and I was his assistant, but he didn't know anything. So he l let me run the show. And that's what I did. That's how I fought the war, mother, you know? <laughs> and nice. it was embarrassing in a way because that's not what I had intended. But anyway, that's what happened. So in this, I'm finally coming to the end of this. At, uh, in this job as, um, as running these USO shows in, um, in Fort Bliss, they had USO tours, uh, USO shows coming through from Hollywood to entertain the troops. And my job was to put them together to get the bleachers set up, get the stage set up, get all the lighting and the amplifiers and get the banners up across the streets to promote it, to get all the trucks and, you know, to promote it and, and make it a big deal and pack the, pack those bleachers with soldiers to listen to the, to the actors and actresses that are coming out of Hollywood to put on the show. Well, the, the last one I did was um, run the guy that was in charge of that show was, um, oh yeah, and Raymond Burr who was, you know, the heavy and rear window movie. And yeah. I guess he was old Ironsides later on. And so that I met Raymond Burr and uh, we put the show together. He did the show and I did all the background stuff. I got the whipped cream that was supposed to be a, a, a meringue pie when, when somebody throws the meringue pie in somebody's face, you know, and then all the white stuff is left around. It's not really a pie. It's just shaving cream and all that stuff. And, uh, so afterwards, after this was, show was finally over, uh, I took him back to his hotel in, um, in town. And he said, well, come on in. I'll buy you a drink in the bar. You know, oh, fine. Okay, good. So I got to meet him personally and then on a social basis for a little while there. And, and uh, he said, well, when you get out of this man's army, come into Hollywood and, uh, and uh, look me up. I'll get you a good connection. Said, well, that's, boy, that was what I was dreaming about. So I got out of this man's army and I went to Hollywood and I looked up Raymond Burr and had his phone number 
I called him and he answered the phone. He said, hello. I said, hi, Ray. Yeah, uh, this is Ed Griffin. Silence. Who? Uh, Ed Griffin, remember? we, uh, uh, The guy in, in Fort Bliss that we put the show on together? Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, hi. Hi, Ed. Yeah, Ed. How are you, Ed? Oh, I'm fine. You said to come in and, and call you when I got to Hollywood. Well, here I am. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, let's see. Well, maybe we'll have lunch or something. So I had lunch with him that day or the next day. And uh, he took me into the studio and showed me what he was doing that day. We're doing some sound effects work. And that's the last I heard from Ray. He didn't, he didn't remember me. He didn't care about me. He wasn't going to fix me up or anything. But I'm in Hollywood. So there are, that's how it all. I mean, this is part of life, you know. It was a, quite a lesson for me, I'll tell you that. And then, um, you know, what you, you mentioned, like, kind of, you know, when you became a crusader, like, what were some of the first things that kind of, like, woke you up and led you towards that field? Well, that, too, was a, a journey of its own. My first, uh, my first awakening was uh, to realize that uh, there was another way of looking at life and economics in particular than the way I was taught in school, particularly at the university. I was taught that uh, government was the ultimate solution to almost every major problem you could imagine, whether it was international or social or economic, medical, banking, I don't you care. Big problems need big solutions, and only government has the capacity to provide big solutions to these big problems. That's pretty much how it was presented to me, and it made a lot of sense. So I was, uh, I was imbued with the philosophy of collectivism without ever knowing it had a name, but that was it, the idea that, uh, that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. That's the, that's the mantra of collectivism. And I bought into it. It sounded reasonable to me. So um, then I discovered uh, while I was working for this corporation, I had a client that I was uh, visiting one day. And while I was waiting in the waiting room to, for the appointment, I picked up this little magazine called The Free Man. And it was about Reader's Digest size and had little stories, little vignettes in there about this, that, and the other thing. And it was a philosophy. It was called, I didn't know it had a name either, but it was called individualism. There was another way of looking at all these big problems in the world. And the solution in, through the lens of individualism was that uh, the group is not important, more important than the individual. That the individual is, in fact, the only thing that exists because the group is nothing but a conglomerate of individuals. And if you sacrifice the individual for the group, which doesn't even exist, it's just a verb, it's a word rather, not a verb, it's an abstraction. You can't touch a group. Yeah, you know, you can see a gr group of many individuals. You can't touch a group. Uh, it doesn't really exist except in the mind. It's a mathematical concept. So it's an abstraction. Um, and so if you put an abstraction uh, forward and say that that has rights that are superior to the rights of an individual, which is real, and the component of the group, well, you've made a huge, you've made a huge mistake. And it's, um, it's a mistake with many manifestations. Um, and that's, this is what I was about to learn. I didn't know it was a mistake when I picked up this little magazine. But then I started to read these stories about the mistake of looking for group action um, or nothing wrong with group action, but using group action under the heel of coercion. 
In other words, government directors, you will do this. I mean, just because I'm an individualist doesn't mean I have to move my piano alone. Um, but uh, if I want to move my piano, I'll call some friends. Say, hey, Joe, come on over. I, I got some beer and pizza. If you can help me move the piano into the other room and, uh, and we'll, then we'll go out and have dinner. How's that? Yeah, well, great. All right. So Joe comes over and he brings his buddy, John, and we all have a good time. Uh, it doesn't take long to move the piano, but it takes a long time to drink the beer and eat the pizza. So, uh, <laughs> That, but that is, that's the difference. Uh, the piano gets moved either way. But yeah. under a, a, a world of collectivism, it's the, you get this order. You will show up at 10 a.m. at this address, and you will be part of the group that will move the piano. And if you don't, there will be dire consequences, and you may even go to prison. And if you, consider, if you can continue this, uh, this rebellion against the, the common good, uh, you will be an outcast in society. And if you really are bad, we'll have to kill you, you know. So shape up, buddy. That's collectivism. No voluntary action at all. It's for the greater good, for the greater number. So we've got a, a law on the books that make it necessary, make it required that you perform the way we say you should. Well, I was just, I knew nothing about that point of view when I picked up that magazine. But that was the first crack. And I, I subscribed to the magazine and I... Uh, I read every issue, every back issue. I still have them in my library. All bound issues of the Freeman magazine. I went back quite a few years and I read them all. I said, boy, this is, this is really good stuff. And that changed me completely in my worldview of, of big challenges because I saw that the real solution finally was, I finally saw it was in the individual, not in the group. And so uh, that was the first thing that I, then I discovered that the United Nations was not what I was taught in school. I was told it was the last best hope for peace. And I discovered, nope, that's not what it's all about at all. That's what it pretends to be all about. And they do a good job of promoting that idea. But when you look at what the UN was doing, even in those days, it was not peaceful. It, had, it was all about coming to power and, and changing the world over to global collectivism so that Everybody was part of the group and had to do what the men at the top and the women at the top said was good for the greater good of the, of the majority of the people. And, uh, and I saw that that wasn't happening. It was all for hidden agendas instead of what even they said it was for. So that was my next great awakening. From there I went, I leapt, leaped from one topic to another. I found, oh my gosh, here's another area I, 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 was, I was misinformed about. I, I learned that the healthcare system was not didn't have much to do with health care, had to do with uh, maintaining treatments because that's where the money is. You know, if you, if you treat, if you're a doctor and you, and you cure an element, uh, that's the end of your uh, income stream for that particular patient. He's cured. Yeah. But if you're a doctor and you don't cure it, but you treat it, and in the treating of it, you perpetuate it so that now he needs the treatment for the rest of his life. Now that's, now, now, now we got a business model, you see. I discovered that is the business model in Western medicine, created mainly by the pharmaceutical industry, which took it over back in about 1913 with large amounts of money, grants from people like the, uh, the Carnegie Fund and the, and the Rockefeller Fund and others. They decided to, under the name of philanthropy, making these wonderful grants to the, to the schools, the medical schools, they took over the schools 
and changed the curricula away from a lot of real treatments that really cured things. They said, that's not going to work. They got rid of all of that and went into pharmaceutical drugs, which are basically, they do some good things, a lot of good things. They sometimes can save a life as an emergency measure, but they're all, most of them are toxic, very toxic. And uh, so it's a trade-off. You cure one thing, but then you cause another problem uh, because of the toxicity of the drugs. And then, well, you've got a drug for that toxicity, which takes care of that toxicity, but creates two more. And first thing you know, you're like most people in the world today. They've got a medicine cabinet full of meds and, yeah. um, and they have to buy those meds, they think, for the rest of their lives. And so it's a great cash cow for the pharmaceutical industry, not to cure anything, but to perpetuate the illnesses. So I discovered that, and uh, that was a complete, which we would now call a red pill, because I, I thought it was the other way around. So uh, on and on, we find out that wars are in the same category. The economy's in the same category. Uh, everywhere you look, uh, it seems like the more important the issue is to mankind, the more likely it is that what we believe is true is a lie. And you went on to author The Creature from Jekyll Island, and that was uh, what led you to the research. I mean, you talked about big pharma and the medical industry right now, but what led you to research our, our uh, financial institutions? Well, Bill, back in the day when uh, I was deciding I was going to produce a lot of low-budget documentary films, uh, I thought, well, here's a good one. The cause of inflation. And everybody's talking about inflation. What is inflation? I wasn't quite sure, but I was pretty sure that what we were being told was a bunch of bunk. We were being told that, uh, I think I'll have to just get that phone unconnected there. We were told that uh, inflation was the other guy's fault. Uh, the price of food was rising uh, because uh, the grocers were making too much profit. And the grocers were saying, no, we're not making, uh, we're squeezing, our profits are being squeezed. It's the, the darn unions that are squeezing us with high wages and we more higher than we can afford. That's pushing the price up. And the union guys would say, no, no, it's the truckers that deliver the food. And the truckers said, not us. No, we're, we're, we're not doing it. It's the, it's the wholesalers. It's the guys that, um, you know, pick up all this, the food and, and warehouse it and deliver it. It's the manufacturing and distribution companies. And they say, no, no, it's the farmers. It's the, these guys are making too much money. And the farmers are saying, no, we're losing our farms. Everybody's saying, no, it's not us, it's the other guy. And they don't really know what the cause was. And I, I didn't either, but I knew it wasn't that. I, had, I thought it had something to do with the government or the money supply, sort of a vague concept. So um, I gathered some research on it. I was gonna produce the film. And um, I, I think I filled a couple of banker boxes with books and papers and reports and letters of correspondence and all this magazine articles. And um, I never produced the film, never did, but it got me in under the tent, so to speak, got my nose under the tent. I could see what was in there, but I didn't understand it all. And uh, I had to abandon the project because I, there was so much to learn. It would have taken me too long. And meanwhile, I had to produce these, these documentary films out pretty fast to keep the food on the table. So I thought, well, this is a great topic, but it's, I've got to put it aside for something that, what we might call low-hanging fruit. So I never did produce that great documentary, but it did uh, lead me to an understanding a little bit. And then some study group in Pasadena, a group on taxes, they were 
they wanted to learn everything about taxes. And they asked me to give a speech on taxes, if I would. And uh, I uh, said, well, I don't know anything about taxes, except that uh, they're too high. And uh, I'm against them. Other than that, well, what can you say? I said, but I'll tell you what, I, can, I could give a speech to your group, if you want, on the hidden tax. The hidden tax? What, what, what's the hidden tax? Oh, you don't know what the hidden tax is? I said that. Well, then you're going to have to have me come give a speech and find out. <laughs> so <laughs> they did. And of course, the hidden tax was inflation. It's uh, nobody thinks of it as a tax, but that's what it is. You have to pay it whether you want it or not, want to or not. And the money flows primarily to the to the banks and to the government who both conspire literally together to put together a system whereby they can gradually extract the purchasing power of the uh, of the money from every citizen without them even knowing it's a process going on so it's a great way to tax people or to take their money without their complaint which is the object of the whole thing so that's how i started and then uh, later on i decided to um, take my little speech and put it on the road um, i put together a one-day seminar called um, crash course on money it was very well received i'm happy to say uh well attended i traveled all around the u.s giving these one day seminars and then one day i'll never forget it this nice little old lady approached me at the end of the seminar and she said mr griffin i'm a widow my husband left me a little inheritance not much but we have some real estate that we rent out and um we have interest payments on it and uh, all of that. And um, what can we do to protect ourselves against inflation? What kind of investments? Should I keep the real estate? Should I get out of debt? Um, should I buy gold and silver? Uh, what should I do? And I, I remember the, the thought hit me like a, a thunderbolt. I hadn't the foggiest idea of what to tell him. I was often wondering about those same things myself, just because I knew how the Federal Reserve was cheating everybody by their creation of the money supply and manipulation of the spending power and so forth. Doesn't mean I knew anything about investments or the real markets. So I, I gave her some lame excuse about she should diversify and all of that stuff that everybody knows what that means, but nobody does it, um, or very few. So. I quit my uh, seminars. I said, this is, this is nonsense. I'm, I'm a fraud. I better find out about the answer to this lady's question before I proceed. So I enrolled in the College for Financial Planning, which is an a academic course that you take to be a financial planner, be a certified financial planner, sort of like a, a certified accountant, CPA. But this is called the Certified Financial Planner, CFP. So it took me about a year to go through this, normally a two-year course, but I sort of put the steam to it and I uh, got through it in the year. And, and not because I wanted to be a financial planner, that wasn't it, but I wanted to know what they know so uh, I could understand the real markets. And so I did that. And uh, that's when I realized, that's when I really realized that everything that all of these financial planners is being taught is completely wrong about money because I already had that side. And all this financial planning was being made on the 
on, on false assumptions. And they were setting their clients up to be destroyed through inflation and thinking mm -hmm. they were doing the right thing. So I thought, well, all right, I've got to, I've got to get this part of the story out. So I decided I was going to finally take all that and write a book about it. Never would I have tackled it had I known in the beginning where this was going to end up. And, but I, I committed to a book and I started to, to write the book and uh, I'll cut to the chase now. I think altogether that process of putting, pulling together that information to the point where, and then actually writing the book was a seven year process. Now, I did other things along the way too, but that was my major project during those seven years. And had I known when I started what I was to learn as I progressed, I would not have tackled the job because I was the last person in the world that you would think would be appropriate to do a book on money and banking, which is a highly technical thing. But um, fortunately, I was able to grasp it and I could see that there was a deeper element to it more than just technicalities and what the discount rate is and how many members on the board and what their votes are, blah, 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 blah. All the technical stuff, which is important if you're in the field of money and banking. But if you're to understand what the scam is, you have to understand, you look, have to look, I looked at it like a whodunit story. It was a crime story. It really is. It's one of the greatest crimes in all history. And I wanted to tell my readers what the crime was, who did it, how they hid it from the from the world and uh, what they're doing nowadays and what we can do to find these criminals and bring them to justice. I wrote it as kind of a story. And uh, fortunately I did because it put a little more reality into it. It made it more interesting in terms of the lives in which we, we live and uh, the things that happened to us, the, the wars and all of the, the growth of Government, aid, uh, government projects, which could never be funded without the Federal Reserve creating money out of thin air to fund it and all that sort of thing. So anyway, that's how it goes. Again, you just go from one thing to the next, all of a sudden you're in a, in a tangent going in some direction you never thought you would go. But that's how it started and, and that's how it continues to go. Now we're in the world of, of pandemics and uh, COVIDs and, uh, and the disintegration of our money supply the coming of a new digital bank currency and all these things. It just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. So there's much, much to learn. And, and that's one of the main reasons why I'm glad I was able to get you on because uh, one thing that one of your videos that's been very popular out there with the, with the movement, with waking people up is your uh, conversation with Yuri uh, Bez, Bezmanov, mm -hmm. um, the defector, uh, the KGB defector back in the day. And um, during that presentation, you know, he kind of brings up the four, um, the four stages, you know, of how to take a country. And I feel like, you know, everything you just mentioned seems to be part of those stages. Like we're living through this, this warning that you tried getting out there back. Well, let's just go back. Like, how did you originally connect with, with Yuri to get that conversation started? Well, I read Yuri Bezminov's testimony before a congressional committee, because back in those days, I was eagerly devouring all the uh, congressional committee reports that were coming from the House Committee on Un-American Activities or the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, because quite often they would be, uh, they would bring in witnesses and uh, people like Yuri, who was a defector, as you say, 
from the Soviet Union. He was a high-ranking um, KGB member uh, in the uh, propaganda division of the KGB. And it was his job to, uh, to primary, uh, his job to entertain, it was the word, um, journalists from the free world who went to Russia to see what it's really like there, you know? So they could report back, well, is it really as bad as we hear? Or is it as good as we hear? What is it? What's the truth? So they would go and visit Russia. When they landed in Moscow, it was Yuri's job to meet him at the airport and get him drunk as soon as possible and treat him very nicely and, and soften him up and then take him around to show him all kinds of theatrically staged uh, uh, play acting that, was, that wasn't reality at all, but it was presented to these journalists as the way life really was in Russia. And it was all staged and uh, they didn't know any better. For example, he, he always make sure that they saw a, a, a Christian uh, wedding, a, a religious ceremony where people get married in Russia. So he went to the cathedral in downtown Moscow, which was still kept open. And he met the priests there. And he didn't know that the priests, or they didn't know that the priests were KGB agents. Um, and they met this young couple who's going to get married and they were invited to the wedding party and they were part of a group that drank champagne and danced to music and everything and there were prayers everywhere and oh my golly they really do have the same traditions here in Russia that we have at home it was all play acting uh, that's one of the stories Yuri tells is that same couple got married about uh, you know once every every other week and um, the same priests, or at least the KGB agents in black robes and white collars would uh, perform the ceremony, same orchestra would play the same music and so forth. And the same thing with every aspect of life in Russia. Uh, taken to see a prison, for example, it was really pretty nice little prison. People lived well there. They were comfortable. They weren't maltreated. Uh, they had flesh on their bones. They weren't starving. They didn't have too many complaints. They, you know, so everything was was uh, false, and that was his job. So, yeah, I read about all this in a government report, and he was in the United States seeking asylum. And uh, he had landed first in Canada, and then he came to the U.S. I thought, boy, I want to I meet this guy. So I called him and arranged. Um, I, I've forgotten how I located him, but I did. And uh, I arranged a, a meeting, and... Uh, was here in Los Angeles. He flew out here and uh, I interviewed him in a lady's home in Beverly Hills. Had a very nice home. She opened the house to us and uh, we sat there in her living room. And I just interviewed him. That's how it happened. And um, interestingly enough, a follow up on that, very few people seemed to be interested in that story at the time. I converted it into a VHS uh, videotape and we sold maybe a couple of hundred copies. And uh, we were happy to sell a couple hundred copies of a story like that. Well, we reached a couple hundred people, you know, <laughs> instead of millions and millions of people like we wanted to. And then it sort of fizzled away. And it just, it sat in my archives for a long, long time until somebody apparently had taken one of those VHS copies that we sold and had digitized it and put it up on their YouTube channel. And from there, it started going viral on the, on the internet, on YouTube. Hmm. And, uh, and then the other people made copies. And first thing you know, there were six or seven 
bootleg copies floating around. I was delighted. <laughs> oh my gosh, this thing is being viewed now. And uh, I, I don't know, that's how it happened. I had nothing to do with it. It's just that after the passage of time and people could see how things were actually e evolving in our world, they yeah. could see when they listened to his, his testimony and his predictions of what's going to happen way, way back. They said, this guy was right. So that's what did it. I had nothing to do with it except to be fortunate to be able to locate him and to get him recorded on videotape. Yeah, so <clears throat> like I, I was saying, that, that that was one of the ones that definitely, you know, like opened my eyes. It seemed like anybody that can kind of like, you know, see with discerning eyes in our nation could see that everything this man was saying we're living through right now. And uh, you said they put on the play acting for the journalists uh, that they brought out there, like, you know, the same couple got married every couple of weeks and, you know, like everything was great there, but Yuri shared in his, um, in his interview with you that, you know, that they had uh, forced labor camps for their political prisoners uh, over there that, um, you know, the gulag system was there and how they infiltrate like, you know, uh, academia, you know, and try to, you know, get the young minds to believe certain propaganda. Um, do you see, you know, I mean, we could even say that we're seeing some of that here today with like the January Sixers um, that are, have been serving in camps right now. I mean, not, not in camps, but in prison our political prisoners right now. But uh, how would you say like uh, from your observation after talking to Yuri, like that you've seen the, the four stages that he mentions in your conversation, like the destabilization stage, the demoralization stage. Um, we've kind of, I feel like we've gone through those and we're headed to crisis or we're in crisis right now. That's where I feel we're at, but where do you feel we're at? Yeah, we're, we're in the crisis, the tail end of the crisis stage. And uh, yeah, this is a stage where people are so frightened by what is happening. They, um, they lose all ability to think rationally about the situation. They're desperate for a solution. So they'll accept almost anything that their leaders say. This is the solution. Even if it involves the surrendering of their liberties. In order, you know, for the greater good of the greater number, we're back to that. We've yeah. got to protect the nation. So you can no longer um, speak your mind openly and freely because if we let you do it, then those bad guys will be able to do it. And look at the crisis we're in already, you know, this sort of thing. So we're in that stage and we have been for quite a while. Now, for um, for our audience to kind of explain better, for the, one, the, the ones that still struggle to see... Um, like I said, you had the conversation with Yuri when he explains the, the beginning stages with the demoralization and the destabilization stage. Can you uh, uh, elaborate more on those and, and what we have gone through that would fall in that category? Well, yes. And that's uh, really deserves a lot of time, but I know we don't have the time. I would say people should go look at the... Um, video and they'll get it all. But um, to summarize, the process is quite simple. Um, as Yuri said, you catch the kids in school when their slates, their brain slates are clean. You can write almost anything on them that you want. 
and you start teaching them the glories of collectivism over individualism. You don't call it communism. You don't call it Nazism, although they are. They just call it uh, the New Deal or uh, the Great Awakening or progressivism or some positive word. But the principles are the same. And, uh, and the other part is to uh, present the nation state that's under attack, present it to the school kids in as negative a light as you can possibly dream up. Everything is because of the filthy, dirty, rotten capitalists doing this to innocent, uh, freedom, happy people that otherwise would lead a very good life. And uh, so when everything is twisted continually in the classroom to present that concept, it's not difficult. If there's no opposition, it's not difficult to capture a whole generation of of young people going through the school system. And that was their goal. They wanted one generation. And Yuri says, we've already accomplished that. That was a long time ago. We've moved on. That That's history. That's done. But now we move on to the next phase, which is what effect does that have on the mind? And he's talking about how when people are conditioned to think in the way I just described, um, after a while, they become incapable of questioning its veracity. They, they adopt it sort of like a religion. It's something you don't question. It's just, you know, it's true. And anyone who would question it is an evil person. Like they would try and convince you that God doesn't exist or they're an atheist or they're right and race, you know, whatever it is. People take on a religious uh, uh, sense about what they believe because it's so deeply ingrained. And I never will forget from that interview, he did, he said, he said, I, I could take these people that have been conditioned, I could take them in when they were in Russia, I could take them to a concentration camp and show them how we really treated people. We, I would show them uh, being tortured and being killed and being starved to death and worked to death. I could see them committing suicide to escape the anguish and the pain. And they wouldn't believe it. They said, no, no, you must be making this up. They could not believe it because they've already been conditioned in their mind. Well, now that you see that today. Yeah, I mean, especially the dissonance. In the system. Now look at all the deaths that are happening as a result of the, of the so-called vaccines. You can look at those statistics. You can talk to the members of the family. And even the members of the family will say, I don't believe this was the vaccine. No, no. It, it just coincidentally, this was COVID or something else. Even though the evidence is so clear, they cannot believe the truth. And of course, the final phase, as we all know, is that when, when they start to pull the wheels off of the cart and, and the economy starts to shudder and people start losing their jobs and they have no means of support and they get hungry and their water gets cut off and, um, you know, and the money supply is gone or it doesn't buy anything. Inflation has gone through the roof and people are now are desperate for survival. That's the crisis stage. And that's what um, Yuri says. We now enter the final stage, which is, I think he called it uh, normalization. Normalization. Yeah, normalization. Normalization is that phase where you bring in the tanks on the street and you just squash the last remnants of opposition. And there's a lot of blood running in the gutter. And people are, the, the prison camps are loaded and the execution chambers are loaded. And that's the normalization where you 
gradually get rid of all the remnants of the last bit of opposition. In other words, you kill them. And that's the phase that we have yet to enter, although we are about to, I'm afraid, if we don't do something. I agree. And I mean, I'm up here, like I said, in Cleveland, Ohio, and not I'm an hour and a half away from East Palestine, where we just had that, you know, that train derailment that's causing all that environmental that's going to affect the farmland and the water supply and everything. And it seems like too many of these things are not happening by like just a coincidence, you know, well, in this crisis stage. <laughs> you never know, but it's, you'd be silly to think that it's all coincidence. There surely are some coincidences, but to think that they're all coincidences is, is irrational, especially knowing what we know about the forces at play here. Now, if we didn't know that there is a history behind this, and we didn't know that there was a strategy that had been well worked out, and if we didn't know that there were defectors like Yuri Bezmenov, he's just one of many, who come out and tell us what the story is, if we didn't have whistleblowers telling us and showing us, and if we didn't have eyes to see that there was a motive for people to do that, you know, if we didn't read their books, well, then we could say, well, it's all coincidence, but these other things do exist. And that's yes. where we come to the point where people will just cannot believe it, no matter how much evidence you put in front of them, because they've been conditioned. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I see our, you know, what's happening with the food plants and uh, the food and water, the infrastructure, the supply chain issues all being under attack. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, when, when people can't eat, like you said, people are losing their jobs and then they can't afford to, to even buy food and the food's going to run out and water Then what? What's going to happen? You know, how are people, how are Americans going to treat one another? Well, we know. We know because it's happened around the world many, 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 many times. They'll turn into animals. Yeah. They'll kill each other for food and water. Yeah. I mean, we're already so divided by, uh, you know, all these hot topic issues through the propaganda that we've been fed. Yeah. You know, that this is just the, the, the boiling point. Yeah. And that's when they come in with their tanks and their trucks and they say, okay, you, you, and you into the truck. Say, well, wait a minute. I live here. No, you don't live here anymore. Into the truck. This is for the greater good. We got to protect you against these evil people roving up and down the streets looking for food. We're going to protect you into the truck. Yeah. To the camp. <laughs> into the camp. Yeah. We're going to we protect there. you. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you, this might be like a a hot, you know, question to ask or whatever, but through this whole phase that we've been going through these different roles and these different stages that are playing out in front of us, what do you feel that uh, former President Trump's role is in this whole thing playing out? Well, that's a tough one to answer because... I'm not as enthusiastic about Mr. Trump as many of uh, my friends are. Uh, I'm a little more skeptical. Uh, yeah, I'm with so, you on that. <laughs> I, uh, I come from perhaps a state where, I hate to say it, it sounds, sounds rather uh, egotistical, but perhaps I know too much. And I mean that in the sense that I, I've studied the literature and the history of our enemy a lot. And, my 91 years, well, I, I didn't start at birth. I'm 91 years old, but for the last 
uh, 71 years, I probably have been studying this monstrous thing. And I've learned to appreciate the fact that controlled opposition, mm -hmm. false leadership, is our enemy's most powerful weapon. It's been used over and over and over again. Our enemy knows what's going to happen before it happens because they make it happen. Yeah. They have Problem buildings. Reaction, solution. Like the military, they have buildings full of people that do nothing but scenarios. Well, if this happens, then what's our response? So nothing takes them by surprise. They say, okay, we worked out the response. That's why they have these simulations. They're just replaying their worked out response of what happens if we, if this and so forth. Nothing takes them by surprise. And most of what happens is because they planned it to be happen, to happen. But they also plan what to do if something happens that they didn't plan to happen. Yeah. So they, nothing takes them by surprise is the point. So they knew long ago that what's happening in the United States now was going to happen and that there would be a, a reaction against it. And they thought there was going to be a movement. People are going to rise up against, they're going to rebel against mm -hmm. what's happening. So what do we do? Do we just wait around for that to happen and then go resist it? No, we will create it ourselves. We will provide the leader. We will provide the speechwriters that will tell them what to say. We will actually have them do some good things along the way so that they will attract the support and the, uh, the loyalty and the ultimate trust of those people that we're going to subjugate. But he's our man, not theirs, and they don't know it. Yep. So when the push comes to shove, he will step down or just disappear or make a terrible mistake or maybe we'll just get rid of him. And that'll be the end of it. And their leader is gone and we win. This, this has happened over and over again. So when you know that, when you know that, it's mm -hmm. hard not to examine all of these political leaders that come from very questionable backgrounds, have very yeah. questionable motives. Uh, their, their history does not speak well for their ethics. And all of a sudden, here they are leading the crusade against evil, being prepared as the, as the second coming of Christ, a religious figure. I mean, there's something very stinky about this image. And that's where I stand. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I kind of, you know, I was, I was, I mean, I jumped on board early on. I, I wanted to have hope that, you know, someone was finally coming through for the people and for us. But as time's gone on and we went through this whole thing with, with, uh, you know, the pandemic and all that and, and, you know, his push for that uh, jab, um, I, I, you know, I, I it's kind of like, pulled the, pulled the wool off my eyes. And I, I still got a bunch of friends that are kind of like, they're part of that Q thing. And I was just like, dude, all it's telling us is to sit back and wait. Yeah. You know? Oh, they want us trust just the plan. Here. Don't do anything. Trust the plan. We got it all under control. Yeah. Don't exactly. do anything. Right, that tells then, you right there. Like, that tells the, you right there. Exactly. Because the only way that for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Yeah, so and that's what they the got a bunch men. of good men Let's doing do nothing. nothing right now. Let's do nothing. But uh, well, um, you know, I I don't want to keep you too too much longer, but I appreciate you, you know, taking the time and talking with me and going over a lot of this with me. What do you feel that 
it, it, you know, what's your last hope or what do you feel that we, the people can do to try and turn this around or is it too late? Oh, it's definitely not too late. It's never too late. That is perhaps the biggest question, the most important question that we needed to discuss is what can be done? And the fact is that there's plenty that can be done, but it involves, it involves the fact that we already have enough people aware of the problem to turn this around. If they knew each other, they don't know each other. They think they're isolated. They think I'm the last person in the world. The world has gone mad. I can see this. I know that something's wrong. I don't trust these people, but everybody else does. Well, that's, that's a false assumption. The media has been successful in, in giving us that impression. And oh, it yeah. sure looks like that when you turn on your television set. But you yeah. get out there in the streets and you talk to people and you, yeah, you find plenty of dummies. There's no question, plenty of, and by <laughs> that, I mean, they're not bad people. They just have been misinformed. I yeah. was there once. I know I was a dummy in that sense once too. Yep, so you find, <laughs> but I think, let me put it this way. We do not, <laughs> excuse me, I'm having a little trouble uh, clearing out some lung breathing problems I've had. So I'm, I have to slow down a bit. I get carried yeah. away and then I, I need to breathe a little heavier. So we don't need a lot of people to turn this around. This is, sounds like it's a uh, stupid thing to say, but it's true. If you look at history, history has always been written by 1% of the population or less. Those were the thought leaders, the real, the real leader, the ideas come from these people. Take a look at the American Revolution. The, the Thomas Paines, the Thomas Jeffersons, you know, the George Washingtons. How many of these leaders were there? Way less than 1% of the population. But now we have the 3% of the population that we might call the, uh, the influencers. Those would be the merchants, the, the delegates to the, uh, to the assemblies of these local colonial governments, to be the judges, um, It'd be the influential people in society, the educated people, the ones that the population looked up to. 3%, they got on board. That would be like the Thomas Paines, for example. He was an influencer. And then you've got 15%, which follows the 3%, which are directed by the 1%, but you've got 15% now, which is the critical mass. They'll say, yeah, this is for me. I can't become totally dedicated because I have to plow my field. I have to raise a family. I have to go to work. I have other things to do, but I'm all on board and I will work as hard as I can to support this movement. That 15% is more than enough to change the world. And it's always that way. If you look at every rapid change, every movement of history has been that way. 1% leading to 3%, leading to 15%. And usually on the other side of the spectrum, there's another 15% working opposite to it. And then you've got the 70% in the middle, which hasn't any idea what the hell is going on in the first place. You know, what's going on? What's going to happen next? I wonder what, you know, they're out of it completely. And they said, well, whoever wins, I'm on their side. You know, that's the way it was in the American revolution. So having said that, and I believe this is, this is certainly true that 
we've already got that 15% of people who know what's wrong and know they're just looking for a good leader. We all need leaders and they need to get together. And when they get all together, they'll find their leader to be one of them. So our job now is to pull all of these 15% together. And that's what I'm doing with the rest of my life, frankly, with something we call Red Pill University. It's kind of a popularized way of saying all the the heavier things that we've been talking about. The red pill, take the red pill and find out the way the world really works. You know, that's what we're yeah. doing. Everything we're talking about is that, oh my gosh, I've been fooled. The world doesn't work the way I thought that way. It works this way. We have to bring all these people together, red pill them so they understand how it does work. And then they will get together and somehow, and I say somehow advisedly because we have some ideas of how, but we're not ready to, to say you've got to do it this way or that way. No, everybody will figure out their own way. And it, it involves not confronting the system or trying to get out of the system, but taking over the system. It can be done. If you work from the bottom up, start in your local community, get control of your county board of super supervisors, can be done. Get control of your city council, can be done. Get your mayor on board, can be done. Get the, the sheriff, the right sheriff in place, can be done and move up. Movements build from the bottom up, not from the top down. So anybody that's interested in more about that concept, I urge them to come onto our website. It's called redpilluniversity.org. You can find plenty of food for thought as to how it can be done. Yes, I wanted you to mention that as well, because uh, actually I've had a couple of the uh, a couple of your speakers from your Red Pill University on the podcast. I've had Dr. Carrie Madey on before and mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Alfonso Monzo, who's actually one of my doctors here locally. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So um, it, I, I saw, you know, it was good that I'm glad you got connected with them. I guess our mutual friend of ours, Joe Gardy, helped get uh, everyone connected down there. But I, I think that's an amazing idea. It's a good way to get out to bring more of the, like you said, the 15% together and get us, you know, on the same page. Um, I want a friend of mine wanted me to ask you too, do you still do any um, like small speaking engagements or book signings? Uh, Cause he would be interested in bringing you out here to the Cleveland area. If you were still doing those. Well, I, uh, I haven't done it in quite a while. Um, I don't want to bore you any more than I already have, but uh, I was hit pretty hard by what I consider to be a weaponized uh, version of the flu about a year ago. And uh, they call it COVID, but uh, it wasn't COVID. It was it's a weaponized version of the flu. And it, it, took me, it almost killed me because I had some other complications. And it sort of damaged my lungs. I'm still having trouble gaining that lung capacity back. But uh, so in that state where I have been not able to move around very much. I haven't been doing that sort of thing. The only public appearances I've been making have been for the Red Pill Expos. And those are big events. Yeah. And uh, I've had to, uh, naturally, a lot of people want to hear this message. And so if I, you know, were so inclined, I could I could be before a group of people speaking every day. But I, I can't do that and get this other thing done too because we've got to build that 15%. And I can't yeah. do that from the from the stage. I've got to do that in private meetings with people and also working out some plans like we're putting on our next Red Pill Expo. We just decided a few minutes ago 
where it's going to be and uh, and um, when it's going to be. And that'll be in um, August uh, in Idaho. And um, so that's going to be a big event. And I will go there. I'm a, I, if I have to walk there, I'll be there and I'll, I'll speak there. But so the, the short answer to your question is uh, I would be willing to go. I used to go anywhere, anytime, <laughs> under any condition. But then I had to narrow it to only larger groups because otherwise I'd be speaking before small groups and it wouldn't be good use of my time. And to make sure that that happened, uh, I was told I had to put a price tag on my lectures, which I did. I kept increasing it and increasing it, thing, thinking these, these people are going to stop wanting to pay this, this amount of money. But <laughs> I don't know. I got them fooled, I guess. And I keep saying, well, come on on anyway, we'll raise the money. So I haven't <laughs> been doing, I haven't been doing that. And, um, I don't think I will at my age now anyway, because traveling is, is a problem. So for the, uh, the event in August in, in Idaho, um, when will that be officially announced and will the people It'll be, be announced to, in the next couple of weeks and they'll be able to purchase, uh, tickets in advance through the website yes. and everything. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah. And yeah. then, um, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, appreciate any, any promotion you can help give us. We've, we've decided to make a change in how we do it this year. Previously, we've always uh, sold online tickets and sold uh, physical attendance tickets. And this year we've decided to uh, take our online version and put it up for free. Oh, nice. people said, well, that's you're crazy. Nobody will, will want to come to your event. How are you going to pay for it? And my answer is, I don't know, but we'll figure out a way. <laughs> We've got to reach more people. Yes. Than we are. Kind so of a crucial point. Put so, it up free. Yeah. Gotcha. I wanted to ask you a couple questions that I, I normally ask guests before I, I uh, let you go. Just a few, but I, I think this would be a good one with, with everything we've discussed. But if you could retake over like the school system, what class do you feel should be mandatory today before kids graduate high school? Hmm. I think that's a trick question. There's some words in there that have trouble getting past he said if i could take over the school system well that's not part of my plan to take over anything but if we change it if i could influence yeah okay all right no we got rid of that word okay yeah uh, and then you say what would i make mandatory whoops that's not the way we do things either remember this is a voluntary world we're trying to create so what class would i recommend okay now we'll get rid of that word um and then the third thing is well it depends on Who's teaching the class? I would say if I were to invent a class and I were to teach it, okay, I would probably call it um, collectivism versus individualism, something like that. To me, that may sound dry to most people, but it's the most exciting concept you can imagine because it, it influences at a very deep level every important aspect of our lives. How do we do things? How do we solve problems? How do we live together? Are we going to live together under compulsion, supposedly for the greater good of the greater number, which doesn't exist? Or are we going to be free to, to do it the way we want to do it? Free to make mistakes, free to learn, free to find a better way, free to see which way works by putting it side by side. 
that's all part of what I think every class should be. And it's not even a class. It would be an experience. We would study history. Maybe it's a history class with mm. that kind of a narrow field on it. The history of collectivism versus individualism might be the class I'm talking about. But I honestly believe once, under pe once uh, people understand what collectivism and individualism really is, they'll never be the same again. They'll, they'll never fall for any of this collectivist uh, uh, fraud. It's a fraud. It's a scam. They, they trick people using their goodwill. You really care about people, don't you? Well, then, then we've got to have welfare to take care of them. Mm. Well, in fact, you put them on welfare, you've committed them to poverty and welfare status for the rest of their lives. You're not taking care of them. You just ruin their lives. Like, reminds me of a joke. <laughs> I, I guess it's a joke. Somebody said they were walking through a, a government uh, building and uh, they were looking for the welfare office. And there was a sign on one door. They, they saw the welfare, op welfare office here. And right next to it was another door that says, um, or a, a bulletin board with a sign on it that says, don't feed the bears. They need to take care of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we got the welfare officer. So what we know is, is good for the bears and other animals. We think, well, that's an exception to humans. Anyway, yeah. that's the kind of a class, I guess. Let's get back to your question. I would like to see a course uh, offered on human nature in terms of self-rule self-rule as an individual as your family and as a as a nation and as a world self-rule in order to rule yourself you have to be responsible for yourself mm -hmm. you can't command anybody else to surrender part of their hard-earned savings and the product of their labor to give it to you because you deserve it once you understand the wisdom of that and that how if you if you follow that concept, you're actually doing the opposite of what you hope you're achieving. You're actually ruining the people you're supposed to help. Look what we did to the poor American Indians. We gave them reservations. And then we gave them money and we built buildings for them and gave them health care, gave them welfare, gave them schools, gave them everything. And the more we gave them, the more they lost their native ability to be independent. Yeah, their and purpose. Yeah. We ruined them. Gotcha. And then um, who are three people who've inspired you and you can credit for making you the person you are today? Huh. Well, that's difficult. Three people. Well, my aunt who raised me, Aunt Alice, we called her. She was a school teacher, taught English in Detroit schools. She gave me my core values, I think. She was a good woman. Everything, everything on the human side came from her. Well, not everything, because I read quite a few books that delivered a lot of messages too on the human side. But now in the field that we're talking about, the world of, of politics and economics, who would that be? Henry Hazlitt, I suppose. Henry Hazlitt, the author of um, Economics in One Lesson. Henry Grady Weaver, 
who wrote uh, The Mainspring of Human Progress. It'd be uh, Bastiat, uh, Frederick Bastiat, who wrote The Law. It would be Dan Smoot, who wrote the Dan Smoot Report back when I was learning all these things, meticulously researched, I think it was a, a weekly report. He taught me the importance of saying something very succinctly, using words that were well chosen so as not to, conf to confuse, to say what you're trying to say and do it in as few words possible and to document everything you say that's controversial. And I think Robert Welch, who taught me the importance of scholarship, to which I've always aspired, but I've never, never achieved at the high levels that I feel were needed. By scholarship, I don't mean just reading a lot of books. I mean, reading a lot of different opinions, different views on history and putting them all together in your own mind and coming to your own conclusions based on evidence, not just somebody else's opinion. I'll probably stop with that list right there because that's a, a lot right there. <laughs> all right, great. And then... um. Any message that you have for our military members that are currently serving overseas? Oh, wow. A message for military serving overseas. No, I don't have any message, except I feel very sympathetic for them. I feel sorry for them because number one, most of them think they're doing the right thing when in fact they're not. But they don't want to hear that and they won't listen to that. So they're going to be they're tricked into being on the wrong side when they don't know it. And those that know it or suspect it are in a tight spot because if they if they let it be known that they're questioning their authorities, they're in big trouble. Yep. And uh, so I feel sorry for them. Uh, I certainly couldn't recommend that they all resign. That would be probably viewed as treason today. Uh, and I don't recommend that actually, because that doesn't really solve any problem. But I would recommend that they look at history and look at their role and see the results of all previous military actions of this kind and see if that's something they really want to support. No, I have no message. Well, like you were saying earlier, though, too, it's like we need, you know, even start locally, but we need good people in, in these positions. So hopefully the good people in in our armed forces can still, you know, come together 
and and do the right thing when they know that an order is unlawful or not, you know. But um, well, you know, Mr. Griffin, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for for coming on here. This was a huge honor for me to get to talk with you, and uh, um, maybe I'll plan a trip in August to come out to Idaho. I got some friends. You better do that. Anyway. Uh, so no coercion, you understand, but you better do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'll definitely. Will. Um, help promote it as much as possible as well. Yeah. Okay, so. Bill. Well, thanks for inviting me and uh, for being patient while I rambled on all over the place. No problem. It was an honor. It's always an honor to hear you speak. And uh, now today I got to have it. But um, uh, real quick, before I let you go, you mind doing one last favor for me? Not at all. Mind cutting a promo ID for uh, my show? Just introduce yourself and you're listening to today's boondoggle. Oh. Sure. Well, right, right now. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Ed Griffin, and uh, I've just been interviewed on today's Boondoggle with Bill Bailey. I've had a good time. I hope you do too. Next time you tune into it, it's a great show. Wow! Thank you so much. You are the professional. <laughs> okay. Ever since your days as a child actor, but thank you so much for the time, and it was an it was an honor, sir. Okay. Thank you very much, Bill, and good luck to you. Hey, baby, this is Double D, also known as Dream Daddy. And I got to tell y'all something about our new sponsorship here at today's Boondoggle. And the name is Dream Nutrition. So if you're looking to empower your human vitality, well, then you come to the right place. With over 12 years of combined experience in cannabinoids and terpene products, Dream Nutrition products include CBD oils, patches, proteins, and so much more. The endocannabinoid system is believed to have involvement in regulating physiological and cognitive processes, including the immune system, appetite, pain sensation, mood, memory, and in mediating the pharmacological effects of cannabis. Support this veteran-owned and operated company today, and today's Boondoggle fans will receive 10% off their orders when using the promo code BOONDOG10 at checkout. That's B-O-O-N-D-O-G-10 at checkout. So go to the link. That's dreamnutrition.com forward slash discount forward slash BOONDOG10. And remember, dream is not spelled like dream daddy. It's spelled D-R-E-E-M. And start saving today because you deserve to feel your best. And you know that's right. So tell them Dream Daddy and your friends from today's Boondoggle sent you. Incarceration Music and Tattoo Festival is back July 14th through 16th at Ohio State Reformatory with Slipknot. Limp Biscuit. Pantera. Plus, Full Beat, Megadeth, Lamb of God, In This Moment, Highly Suspect, Flyleaf, featuring Lacey Sturm, Motionless and White, and more. 
Hurry and get passes now. Incarceration 2023 will sell out fast. Passes on sale now as low as $10 down at incarceration.com. It's just one of those days. It's all about the Slipknot, Limp Bizkit, and Pantera. Inkmates, let's get ready to rock. So come and get it, get it, get it, get it. Thank you for listening once again to today's Boondoggle Radio Show. Please be sure to check out our website, DomainCLE.com or Today'sBoondoggle.com for more shows and check out our archives. Follow us on social media at Today's Boondoggle on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter for more information about this podcast. And please support us on www.anchor.fm forward slash Today's Boondoggle, as well as on our GoFundMe and Venmo. Be sure to subscribe, comment, download, and listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spreaker, and all the other podcast platforms out there. Please email us with any questions, suggestions, and comments via todaysboondoggle at gmail.com. Leave us some five-star reviews and help spread the word. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for tuning into this week's Today's Boondoggle. Domain Cleveland Entertainment is a veteran-owned and operated cornucopia of nonsensical shenanigans. You can find interesting interviews, music news and information, and just about everything else in between. Thank you again for supporting, sharing, and tuning into Today's Boondoggle.